Hello, and welcome to Connect, Collaborate, Champion, the podcast of the New American Colleges and Universities, a network of private campuses working to educate students for the public good. Our podcast speaks with insightful experts about current and future issues in higher education and examines the impact of higher ed on society. Thank you for joining us. Mass shootings in America are becoming more frequent and deadlier. If we define them as shootings in which at least four people are injured or killed, the Gun Violence Archive has tracked more than 450 mass shootings already in 2023. I'm your host, Michelle Apuzio, Senior Director of Programs and Communications at NACU. In this episode, we'll talk with Dr. Jillian Peterson, a professor of criminology and criminal justice at Hamlin University in St. Paul, Minnesota, whose research engaged undergraduate students in creating the most comprehensive database of every mass shooter in America since 1966. What they found reveals much about how we might approach the epidemic of violence in this country. With that research, Dr. Peterson has co-authored a book with sociologist Dr. James Densley called The Violence Project, How to Stop a Mass Shooting Epidemic. Dr. Peterson, welcome to the NACU podcast. Thank you. Let's begin with the beginning of the research project. Why did you choose to chronicle mass shootings since 1966? We chose 1966 because that was kind of the first modern day mass shooting. So that was the Texas Bell Tower shooting at the University of Texas. And it happened to take so long. People thought it was maybe a protest. People didn't register what was happening when the shooting started. So it ended up being kind of live streamed on television. And that was the first time we saw this sort of massive media attention around mass shootings. They certainly existed before then, but people see that one as kind of a turning point. In terms of turning points, was there something within the last few years that motivated you and Dr. Densley to begin this research for the database? Yeah, we started this research in about 2017, actually. And it was there was a media conversation around, you know, mental health and mass shootings. My research area before this had been the relationship between mental illness and violence. And so I went and started Googling, trying to figure out what percentage of mass shooters actually had a diagnosable mental illness. And it became clear really quickly that we knew very little about these perpetrators and who they were. Then it was the Vegas shooting that happened that fall. That was really the turning point where I had students coming to me saying, is there any way that we could do something about this? So it really started with just a group of passionate volunteer students And myself and my research partner, James Densley, and an Excel spreadsheet kind of around a conference room. That's wonderful, because that was my next question is talking about how the students were involved in the project. You know, how many students and how did you make sure that it was meaningful for them? And and how did you tie it back in with the curriculum that you were already doing? Yeah, this project, it would not have happened without students. The students really were the drivers So we started by making a list of every mass shooting where four or more people were killed in a public space. That actually was a significant project, just getting together the number of shootings we wanted to code. And then we made a list of variables that we wanted to code them on, um, risk factors for violence, risk factors for self-harm. We started with about 50 variables or so. 
and it's grown where now each perpetrator is coded on about 200 variables. And all those additional variables came from students, right? It was students digging around saying, we haven't put in military history. We really need to put in military history. So students really did help create the project. So each perpetrator was coded twice initially by two separate students kind of digging around the dark corners of the internet and finding as much information as they could. We would then reconcile those and it would be kind of checked by a third student. So it was really just a matter of training students. Um, They worked on their own. They were super passionate about it. I would say since 2017, we've maybe had 50 or 60 different students involved in the project. We have eight right now working on the next version. Wow. How long do the students work on the projects for? And how do you make sure you have that continuity, you know, to make sure that they're coding it in the same way as their predecessors, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah. So we now require a one-year commitment to the project. And so we do some initial training. We do reliability checks pretty regularly where we give everybody the same case and just make sure that all the coding is coming back the same. And then again, each case is coded twice, triple checked, quadruple checked. So it's just kind of multiple eyes on the same case. But I will say the data is always kind of changing and emerging. And mm-hmm. so some we go back and we recode cases five years later and there's totally different information available. So it is this kind of living, breathing document. But we have also had some students with us for all four years of their college experience. And they went from, you know, being very self-conscious, not sure what they're doing to these super confident database managers by the end of their four years. When did you start to realize this was going to be something that was worth writing a book about? So we started the database without funding initially, just kind of as a volunteer research project. We then got a grant from the National Institute of Justice in 2018. And that was really a game-changing grant for us. You know, we're we're at a small liberal arts college. We don't usually get big NIJ grants. It was rather shocking. It was the first one that I've ever gotten. It allowed us to pay students. Um, It allowed us to kind of pick up the pace on our coding. And then importantly, it also allowed us to do interviews across the country. So we interviewed perpetrators of mass shootings, people who knew perpetrators, victims, survivors, to really get this 360 view. And we did bring students on those interviews as well. So we would have students come into the field with us as note takers and kind of travel around the country. And it was clear as we were collecting those stories especially those stories and how they interacted with the quantitative data, that we had something really powerful. And a book just seemed like where we needed to go with it. It was kind of too much for an article. There was too many rich stories and we wanted to do them justice. So we decided to go with the book. One of the things that that struck me when I opened the book and began reading is I was a page and a half in and I felt such sadness for the Parkland High School shooter. And I thought, wow, this is just a very different look at mass shootings than I think most of us who get all of our information from traditional media, social media, are used to viewing the mass shooting epidemic in this country. Can you talk about um, some of the things that you found? You know, the book details four specific factors that are found among people who commit mass shootings. Um, Can you talk about those a bit? Yes, sure. And that that is what we were trying to do with the book. You know, perpetrators, they do absolutely horrific things that cause so much pain and destruction. 
But it was clear when we got into the research that there are also human beings who had a pathway to violence and they were somebody before they did this. And in order to prevent these and stop this from happening, we have to be willing to kind of look at the humanity of these perpetrators and what their pathway to violence looked like. And so what we found very generally was this pathway to violence. So starting with pretty significant early childhood trauma, physical abuse, sexual abuse, neglect, that developed over time into a crisis point. So perpetrators felt isolated, alone. They're actively suicidal. That was kind of a turning point when we realized that these are suicides in addition to being homicides. Their behavior is changing. They're acting differently. People around them are noticing. Third, we call social proof, which is this idea that perpetrators study other perpetrators. They study people who came before them. They get radicalized in online chat groups. Um, They read the manifestos and they feel kind of connected to these previous shooters. They see themselves in these shooters. And then fourth is opportunity, which is both access to the guns that they need to perpetrate the shooting and the location that kind of represents their grievance with the world. You know, there was one thing that surprised me in reading the book, which was talking about how severe mental illness is not necessarily a significant part of most mass shootings. Were you surprised by that also? And was there anything else that was surprising to you? You know, based on my previous work, I was actually not surprised. I think we have made this connection in our public discourse between mental illness and mass shootings. And we found when it comes to sort of serious and persistent mental illness like psychosis, it's really a small minority of perpetrators who are experiencing that. But what was tricky, and I'm still working on it, and we struggle with this in the book, is how do you describe, you know, serious and persistent mental illness and separate that from just sort of mental health and wellness? Because nobody who does this is mentally healthy and doing well, right? And so there's things like being in crisis, being suicidal, being isolated, being disconnected. Um, All of those things were really common amongst mass shooters, but that doesn't necessarily translate to a specific diagnosis. And so we wanted to really separate those things out. You know, how does context play a role in determining why some people can have these traumatic childhoods and yet be resilient and, and move beyond them and why other people, I mean, certainly the the background that some of these folks detailed in the book was really heartbreaking to read. So did you find any protective factors, if, if we can call them that? Yeah, I think that is really important because obviously so many people go through really significant childhood trauma and would never do something like this and end up very resilient. And so we know that things like universal trauma screening can be really helpful. Um, Even just kind of one healthy, good adult in your life can actually be incredibly protective, right? School factors, neighborhood factors, all of those things go into kind of protecting a child from that trauma laying the foundation for future problems. So context becomes really important. I'm a psychologist and my research partner is a sociologist. And so we have these kind of different perspectives on the individual versus the larger societal context, which I think is really helpful. The book also mentions that there are qualities that are inherent to Americans' viewpoints that may play a role in mass shootings. You know, what is it about being American that contributes to this? 
Yes, the second chapter in our book is called America. And there's a number of factors um, because this is a pretty unique American phenomenon. There are mass shootings in other countries, but nowhere close to like what we see in the United States. Certainly access to firearms is one major factor. We just have incredible, easy access to firearms in this country compared to other countries. But we also think there's more to it than that. So that's a significant factor. But things like the American individualism, the quest for fame and notoriety amongst all things, that was a really common factor. Perpetrators want to go down in the history books. They want to be known. They want their you know face recognized, even if it's for something horrible. That quest for fame is such an important part of this. Um, I think there's also something about the toxic masculinity in our culture when it comes to perpetrators feeling like they were owed something in society. You know, they are 98% men. They feel like society owed them something that they didn't get. And so that must be somebody's fault. And whose fault is it? And that turns into this anger. So I think all of those pieces are kind of wrapped into our culture in different ways. You and and Dr. Densley identified several solutions to a mass shooting epidemic, and it was at the, both the individual level and then all the way up to sort of societal levels. How do you hope that this research is used? And you know what has been the response so far? You know we've been actually shocked and overwhelmed by the response. We've done you know tons of media interviews. We've got tons of speaking requests. We've had parent groups and teachers and hospitals and organizations really wanting to think about what prevention can look like. So not just response, not just mitigating casualties, not the run, hide, fight, but how do we really get ahead of this? And that requires understanding who perpetrators are and where they come from and what the warning signs are. Our hardest part is getting people to keep talking about it When there isn't a mass shooting that's occurring, because it tends to be something that people want to talk about for a few days and then we move on until there's another shooting. But we're hopeful that by coming up with these 34 different solutions, we can kind of pull people in rather than push people kind of to the two political sides. We found a lot of support for our work across the political spectrum because we're willing to embrace this idea that this is complicated and this is a complicated pathway to violence and there's a number of different things that you can do from early childhood trauma to crisis points, suicidality, mental health, access to guns. It all matters and it's all important. And so I think grounding the work in the data and in the stories and embracing the complexity, we're hoping to pull people in in a way that can really start to kind of push policy forward. We also organized our solutions as things individuals can do, things institutions can do, and then things society can do. And I think it can get so frustrating at the society level when it feels like Congress isn't doing anything. But we wanted people to feel like there are things that you can do in your own life, in your own school, in your own place of worship, in your own workplace to prevent mass shootings. You are not helpless. And so we did want to empower people and give them that sense of hope. One of the things that really struck me, it was near the end of the book where you had interviewed a woman who saw a young man walking towards a storage unit and she knew something was off, something wasn't right. And she ended up contacting the police, even though I think a relative of hers had said, no, I'm sure, you know, I'm sure it's fine. But, you know, 
ultimately, uh, spoiler alert, you know, she foiled a mass shooting. And that it's just a great illustration of how one person can really make a difference. So I, d- I loved how the book outlined different things. It's not just about banning assault rifles and it's not just about widespread mental health support, although those two things would certainly go a long way, but just how each of us as individuals can have an effect on a person's life or possibly prevent something that is going to be horrible for many people. What are the next steps? You know, are you engaging students in any of the advocacy that you're doing? We are, yes. So um, the Violent Project has now become a university center at Hamlin University, which is really exciting. So we are working with students on expanding the database. We've actually are in the process of releasing a new database, which is K through 12 school shootings, all shootings, so not just mass shootings. We've expanded our work into studying community homicides as well. And so we're hoping to take this same approach of, you know, building quantitative data sets while also collecting the qualitative stories to get at the real roots of violence in a way that's really nonpartisan and can pull people in in a really kind of data driven way. And so we are working with students on all of those different projects And then also finding ways to translate that research into really tangible things that schools or workplaces can do, whether that's programming or training or policy recommendations. So it's kind of an exciting year for us as we move into this university center space and kind of expand our work. Wonderful. Is there a place where folks can go to learn more about the book and and the project? Yes, our website is theviolenceproject.org, and there you can download the full database if you want to and interact with it. We've also got key findings and methodology, information about the book and future projects. So it's a it's a good resource for people. Well, best of luck. Such an important project. And thank you so much. I really appreciate it, Dr. Peterson. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Connect, Collaborate, Champion. We want to give a special thank you to our producer, George Drake Jr. To learn more about the NACU campuses, visit nacu.edu.